You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. And I invite you to return to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we pray that, Father, you'd be pleased to teach us from this passage, Father. Some of the the verses are difficult. Father, help us to understand. Help us to come to more than a simple understanding. But, Father, we pray that that which you have desired to convey to us and communicate to us that would become clear to our hearts and the principles that we find therein, oh, Father, would be principles and precepts that we would strive to align our lives with. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would be pleased, Lord, pleased to make us more Christ-like as a result of our studying your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Question that I think is more popular than we realize is the question, what is going to happen to us? And of course, this is a question when I say us, I'm speaking of all humanity. I'm not just speaking of the church. I'm speaking of people in our society altogether. What is going to happen to us? And I think that question is on our minds more often than we realize. Someone might say, well, why, why do you think that? Because of the anxiety that's everywhere. Uh, people are really anxious, aren't they? And wound up. And, and we can understand that. For so many reasons, we can understand that. And what is undergirding that anxiety? What is, what is really at the center of that anxiety? What's going to happen to us? I mean, really, what's going to happen to us? We can push that back into the subconsciousness really far, but it's still there. It's like one of those programs on our computer. It's not on the screen, but it's running in the background. And as it runs in the background, it's affecting the performance of the device. What's going to happen to us? What is going to happen to us? Well, who do we turn to to look for answers? The uh, experts, the unnamed experts. You know, how often have you heard in your lifetime, this saying, well, that's what they say. 
Well, this is what they say. Eggs are good for you is what they say. Uh, no, that's not what they say anymore. They say egg whites are good for you. Uh, no, I think they're back to saying the whole egg's good for you again. I, I, am I right? I, I think that one. No, I mean, I, well, coffee, it, it's not good for you. Um, s- recent studies suggest it's good for you. I've never slowed down with it. I've been drinking it all along, so if it's good for you, I'm good to go. But who are they? Who are these experts that present their theories to us and peddle their theories as if they're gospel truths, only to later abandon them for the latest theory? You want a recipe for anxiety, there you go. I mean, what is it going to be... Two years from now, six months from now, don't eat any eggs at all. I don't know. Um, I don't know. But what I do know is we need to hear from the Lord, whose word of truth never changes. His word was true when Moses wrote Genesis. His words were true when Jacob expressed these words to his children, and these words are true today. And it's who we need to hear from um, So as we ask this question, what is going to happen to us in the days to come? Let us look to the Lord. Now, last week, I had mentioned that starting in uh, really at the very end of Genesis 47, all the way through 48 and 49, the, the, the context, the scene actually, is the deathbed of Jacob, which, and I pointed out, we looked at some verses, we looked at verses that that uh, concerned the death of Abraham, the death of Sarah, uh, the death of Isaac. And we saw that not a whole lot of material was given, actually, to their, to their death. But then when we come to Jacob's death, we see that there's a lot of material. And I suggested, uh, my suggestion for this is that it's because there's a major transition taking place, a transition from what we might call, in the strictest sense, uh, patriarchal time, meaning uh, the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to uh, the the period of Israel as a nation. I think I think when we start to see it that way, we begin to understand, and we especially begin to understand why the Lord would call a meeting with Joseph and his two sons to Jacob's side, and that's what we studied last time. And again, we saw that what brought Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh to the bedside of Jacob was the fact that his illness had intensified. And, uh, of course, looking behind that, we could see that the one who really is behind calling this meeting is the Lord. And we asked the question, why? Why Why is this happening? And I think we have a good answer. What would become or what would happen to Ephraim and Manasseh had this meeting not taken place? How would they fit in? Of course, there would be some gray area there. Ephraim and Manasseh were born into Egypt. You can almost hear you can almost hear a liberal side of this saying, "Hey, you know, everybody's the people of God." And you can almost hear the conservatives all the way out on the right saying, "Oh, no, 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 those guys strictly aren't in." You know, they're born in Egypt. You can hear that. No, you can hear all this. But the Lord takes what otherwise would be gray and He makes it black and white. How do they fit in? What's going to happen to them? This is what's going to happen to them. They're going to be exalted from grandchildren to children, and they're going to receive an inheritance just as Reuben and Simeon and Levi and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is what's going to happen. 
Then when we come to Genesis 49, we see that another meeting is being called, but this time it's being called by Jacob. Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. In other words, Jacob is calling his sons and he's saying, listen, come here and I'm going to share with you what is going to happen to you. That's what he's saying. And we need to be appraised that there is no man alive who can look down the corridors of time and with detail share what is going to happen. You know, kind of makes you, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking about, and I, didn't, I don't recall seeing any this year, but I've seen them in past years where like at the end of the year, the beginning of a new year, they take the footage, you know, they take the footage of the experts and how they predicted, oh yeah, by the year, uh, by the year 2015, uh, we're going to be doing this, 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 and this, you know, and then they, they, they show the year 2015 and it's nothing like they had shared. Has anybody ever seen those kind of things? You know, or you'll, you'll hear them on the radio or you'll see them on uh, broadcast and stuff where the experts are putting their best foot forward to trying to predict where we'll be a year from now or five years from now. And it's, it's really many times these things are pitched almost in a humorous way because nobody can do it. It doesn't matter how much expertise you have in a particular field. You may be right about some things. You may have some insight about, okay, this is the way the market's trending for sure. We may have some details, but to go centuries down the quarters of time with great detail. That is something that nobody can do. Jacob is about to do this. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that what Jacob is about to share is not Jacob's best wishes for his family. You know, he's not, he's not sharing what he is hoping will happen. Of course, as we begin to study this, we can see that's not the case. What Jacob is sharing is a word from the Lord what will happen to you? I'm going to tell you what the Lord has to say about that. This is what's going to happen. And notice he says to his sons, he calls the meeting and he says, gather yourselves together. Assemble and listen. Let's not gloss over those words too quickly. This whole idea of gathering yourselves together, assembling, assemble and listen. If the Lord is about to speak, then we ought to be there, right? Right? Sounds simple enough, but yet it's, it's, it's a command that we often don't get too good, isn't it? We're called to gather ourselves together, assemble, and listen. I can remember talking with a, uh, was one of our instructors when we had our music store, and I was trying to get him to come to church. And he, I, I wasn't exactly sure where he was at in his faith, but he was um, really into a, a popular preacher who was on the television at that time. And of all of the preachers he could have picked from the television, this was one of the better ones. Um, so I think he could have gotten at least some semblances of the gospel there. But his response to me about going to church was this. Why should I go to get up and go to church when I have the best right in front of me on my television set? Well, here's an answer to that, because we're called to summon together. We're called to, we're called to gather together. The author to the letter of Hebrews says, you know, don't neglect gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing. So in neglecting to gather together, we're actually sinning against God. So that would be a good reason right there. But on a practical side of it, in terms of benefits, 
We get benefits by coming together, gathering together. Uh, you can't become part of a family if you're absent. You can't grow as part of a family if your attendance is willy-nilly, can you? I mean, you really can't. You can't see what's going on in other people's lives. You can't stand back and say, wow, look at this growth or look at that growth. Nor can you be involved in the, in the, in the nitty-gritty of life. You know, Alex wants us to pray for his job. If I wasn't here this morning, I wouldn't have heard about that. Maybe someone would have shared with me. Maybe they wouldn't. I wouldn't even know what he's going through. I wouldn't be joining him in prayer. And I could just go right down the list of the benefits. Jacob is calling his sons together that they may hear the word of the Lord. Now, before I move on to this, I think this is a really good time. And I like to take these moments when they come in Scripture to share basically at the very heart of my philosophy of ministry is this. What we need more than any other thing is to hear the voice of the Lord. You've heard me say that, haven't you? Some of us have had conversations when you were, when you were courting the church, thinking about getting involved, and we had those conversations, and you wanted to know what our philosophy of ministry was, and I shared with you, this is my philosophy of ministry. In order for us to find salvation, in order for us to grow in grace, we got to hear, we have to hear, we must hear the word of the Lord. We must hear God's voice. Now, how do we hear God's voice? We hear God's voice through His Word. Let me give you a good example. I love to use this example. Now, I don't always use Laura in this example, but I love, I'll use Laura this morning because she's an editor, you know? She's very good at this. If Laura were to write a letter to Tammy and I, and she were to say in the letter, uh, Rick, when you receive this letter, read this to Tammy. And I was to get into the mailbox, I was to get the letter out, and I would say, look, Tammy, we got a letter from Laura. And I open it up, and she wants me to read it. So uh, we sit down, and as I begin to read this letter, who's talking? Who's doing the talking? Laura is doing the talking. We got a letter here, folks. And why I take this so seriously is because, back to the, to the illustration of Laura, insofar as we understand Laura's letter, Laura is speaking, right? The thoughts on her heart, which she wishes to convey in her letter, are coming out of the letter and being communicated to our hearts. That's why we write letters. God has written an exhaustive letter to us. And as we read these words, we're reading the Lord's words. We are actually hearing the Lord communicate His heart to ours. And this is where healing takes place. This is why you're all growing the way you are. This is why, this is why though we may have a lot of problems going on in our lives, but nevertheless, even in the midst of those circumstances, we're flourishing spiritually, aren't we? We're all, listen, we're going to have these problems for the duration of our pilgrimage. Let's just get that over with. I mean, God will take us and give us rest from that every now and then. But once we get up on the peak, just be, realize it's not going to be long before you're going back down the other side. We can flourish in the midst of those valleys. 
Jacob calls his sons to gather together and to assemble and listen. And here we are. This is, this is what we do on Sunday morning. So we, we gather together and we assemble that we might listen and hear from the Lord. Now, Jacob begins in verse 3, he begins to pronounce blessings and he begins with his firstborn. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. And of course, we know, we can, some of us will remember when we were studying that, uh, Reuben is born to Leah and it's the first child that Reuben has. And literally, Reuben is uh, Jacob's uh, firstborn. We'll get to that here in a minute. But notice he goes on to say, my might and the first fruits of my strength. What is he referring to there? Well, in Scripture, you'll notice that the Lord, the Lord loves children. The Scriptures highly prize children. I mean, when I read this verse, I immediately think of Psalm 127. Now, you, you, if you want to listen, you can turn there if you like, but uh, at least write down Psalm 127 so you can look at it later. You're probably familiar with one of the verses in Psalm 127, which reads, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Probably many of us know that verse. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But notice what is said in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. See how much the Bible uh, prizes children. And we've seen that in our study. We've seen that in the negative as uh, we have watched Sarah, for example, who went many years without having, being able to have a child. And we've talked about this, that in this culture, one of the worst things that could possibly happen in this culture is for a woman not to be able to, to have children. And we see the, 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 the way that the Scriptures prize children. Behold, verse 3, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now notice verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. You know, there's this strengthening uh, thing to it. And of course, in this day, children were, were in many ways, they were needed to help. With, there's an agricultural society and children are needed, uh, you know, as, as parents age. You know, the, the living comes from the field. And you eventually reach a point where you're not going to be very productive in the field. And lots of children are a benefit there. But that's not all it's in view. There's a love for children that comes out in the Scriptures. And to have many children is such a blessing. Verse 5 expresses this. Blessed is the man who's, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And there we see, going back to... To Genesis 49, Reuben is looking, or Jacob is looking at Reuben there, and he's, you are my firstborn, my might. When Reuben came into the world, Jacob went from being simply married to being a father. Major, major transaction took place. And if I, I think I would be doing a disservice if I moved on and said this. Just because these children... Just because a child hasn't been born or maybe hasn't been born alive doesn't mean that the parents aren't parents. You follow what I just said? Some of us know the pain of losing children, whether it be miscarriage, 
were stillborn. Tammy and I know that pain. I can, we can speak about that pain. We have firsthand experience in that pain. We know that pain. Let me share this with you. You're still parents. Once that conception takes place, there is life. There is a soul. And there are children awaiting. You know, if I might digress just a little bit. If you let me digress just a moment. When I was in the North Hills, there was a, a fella. We just loved him to death. I'll leave his name out, but he's already gone to be with the Lord. His, his, his widow is still alive. She is a lovely woman. And he came to me one day after a Bible study, and he said, I have a question for you. And I said, yeah. And he began to share this. And mind you, he was, he was probably in his early, mid-80s at this point. It served in World War II, and, um, but he said to me, he said, what happens to children when they die? It's a common question that's asked of pastors. And I said, well, you know, um, we have some, we, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have an example, you know, with David, King David. You know the story of King David? He goes, yeah, I know the story of King David. He goes, but I've had some pastors tell me that the child wasn't old enough to, to um, confess his sin and therefore never got the opportunity to have salvation. I was horrified by that answer and thought to myself, who told this poor man this? Well, he didn't believe that. But he had talked to some others, and one person had said to him, well, if your child is elect, then they'll be in heaven. Now, what does that say if the child isn't elect? Now, Listen, on a the, in a theological sense, in a theological, um, you know, if we want to talk about theology, we want to start talking about that way. It's not that that's false. But if you've lost children this way, don't be fussing around asking yourself the question whether they're elect or not. Take the lead from David. What does David do? There's a story in Samuel where David... Actually, he has his affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. The child is born. The child becomes very sickly, deathly sickly. David, in sackcloth and ashes, refuses to eat, lays face down on the floor and prays and pleads and prays for healing for that child. So much so that the people around David, attending to David, were worried that David was going to harm himself. That is his distress. And then David notices that they're whispering. He notices that they're, they're, they're consorting with one another, and he's a sharp guy. He realizes, okay, the child has passed away. He asks the question, has the child passed away? And they say, yeah, the child, is, the child is dead. Now, what does David do? He gathers himself up. He changes his clothes, and he has a meal prepared. And they're confused, and they say, David, while the child was alive, you refused to eat. You're laying on the floor. Now that the child has died, you want food. And David's response was, while the child was alive, I thought maybe the Lord would heal him, and then he could be with me. But now that the child has died, I will go to him. 
Now, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. A pastor has no business saying to parents who are grieving over loss of children, if he's elect, he'll be in heaven. I would submit to you that as pastorally reckless, pastorally cruel to make such a suggestion as that. I will tell you what I do in these regards. I'm going to follow David's lead because I think we've been given that story for this very purpose. I expect to see our children in heaven. I fully expect it. Why? We have so many reasons. Look at the look at how children, how the Lord how the Lord values children. And this speaks actually to the massive, to abortion, that, that, that horrible and massive business, abortion business that's taking place in our land, a $3 billion business annually. Um, and we argue, as Christians, we argue that you're taking away life. You see, you're taking away life is our argument. And it's a biblical argument, and that is the argument, you see. Why? This life is prized. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength. Now, look at the term firstborn. We're not going to be able to really go into that term. If, if we went into that term, we would have to set really a, a whole Sunday aside for that because this term is so pregnant, especially with messianic connotations that it would take a while to develop. But I think what we'll do is we'll work on developing that when we get to Judah. I think it would be a good time to talk about that. But here we are. Jacob recognizes that Reuben is his firstborn, and we learn a lot about the firstborn in this verse. You notice that he says that he is preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, what is, what, is that all, what is that all about? What that's about is according to this culture, and in this culture, the firstborn was possessed, was, was really received a, a preferment, if you will, a privilege. The firstborn was the one who actually would be the one who would carry the torch. The, the leadership of the family would be handed down from the patriarch to the firstborn. And the firstborn would receive a double inheritance. Some of us are well aware of that. Um, firstborn would receive a double inheritance. And there were other things going on. So here you see uh, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Uh, what that's referring to is the privilege that God has given Reuben. None of us have determined when we would be born. Does anybody recall that? You know, I think um, I'd like to be born, you know, in July 3rd, 1967. I think that'd be a wonderful time to be born. And I'd like to be born in Liverpool, East Liverpool. That's where I want to be born. Yeah, I want to be born in City Hospital um, in, on July 3rd, 1967. That sounds wonderful. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Not that I was born in East Liverpool Hospital. That, I don't think it was ridiculous. I think it was a great day. But, um, but um, just to lighten things up a bit here... Um, but we don't determine when we're born, nor do we determine if we're the oldest or the youngest or somewhere in between. So you see, this right of privilege is something that the Lord grants. Now, I'm treading on this really carefully because there's a lot of people, we have friends in our culture today that really revolt and rebel against any kind of notion 
of um, privilege. There are political theories that are becoming more and more popular in our culture that are just radically rebelling against any notion of privilege. And here you come to this verse here, and very clearly there's privilege here. Reuben is born in this sense of privilege. And I want to point out that Reuben didn't decide this for himself. Reuben had nothing to do with it. And the privilege here uh, actually was a privilege that the Lord gave. And I want to recognize that there is privilege here. Reuben receives a privilege that the rest of his brothers don't receive. And um, I just want to softly say, and there's probably folks that are going to listen to this online, who, who may really reject this notion of privilege. And, and I just want to softly say this. You know, if you were receiving the privilege, would you still be radically against it? You understand what I just said? Those who radically push against any type of privilege, if they had received the privilege, would they still be pushing against it? Now, someone might say, absolutely, I'd still push against it. Well, then my response is, well, Peter said he wouldn't deny Jesus either. Lord, even if I must die with you, I'll be with you. And then when the time came, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. And my point is, none of us can answer that question because none of us really know the answer. When Peter said to Jesus, no, I'll never deny you, Peter believed he would never deny Jesus. I think Peter believed that. I don't think Peter was making that up. I don't think in the back of his mind he thought, no, I'll fail. I don't think any of that for a minute. I think he really believed it. He would follow with Jesus. And then the time came and he folded up. So the fact is we can't answer that question, but it's something to make us think. The fact is here, Reuben, Reuben didn't do this. Jacob didn't do this. The Lord did it. And there is indeed a privilege here. But notice, notice how this goes for Reuben. This Reuben did do. Reuben had the wonderful privilege of being the firstborn. And mind you, he's the firstborn in the line of Abraham. You think of the privilege of that because there's this promise of a son. You know, remember Genesis 3.15, the promise of a son, one who is coming? Could he be the one? What a, a tremendous privilege Reuben had. But notice verse 4, Jacob says, you're unstable as water. Now, what does that mean, unstable as water? Well, water can't control itself. I mean, if, if, if I take a glass of water and I pour it on the floor, will it remain in the shape that it was in when I had it in the glass? It, it has no control. It'll just spread out everywhere. It'll go everywhere where gravity pulls it. It has no resilience whatsoever. It's unstable. What Jacob is saying to Reuben is that you're, 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 you're unstable. You're unable to control yourself. You've got this problem where you're, you, you have no self-control. You shall not have preeminence. Why? Because of the affair that you had with my concubine. Now again, people in our culture say, what? Concubine? You Christians are always going about marriage being between one man and one woman, and you're reading a book that's got concubines all over it. Well, let's speak to that for a moment. 
Is this a relationship that God approves of? No. And as we've studied the life of Jacob, this has created a lot of problems, hasn't it? That whole idea, we don't have time to go into it all now, but this whole idea. What is, God, what is God's rem, his, his prescription for marriage is that a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. This is what is so amazing about the Bible is because the Bible records everything just the way it is. This is messy. It's really messy. And what we see is we see a God who, even though he can't stand this stuff, he's in the midst of this stuff, working and laboring, showing mercy and grace to his children. What, is, what has Reuben done? He's had an affair with Bilhah, and this has caused him to lose his right as firstborn, hasn't he? Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Your brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Now, what's in view here? You recall, some of us, the uh, uh, story of Simeon and Levi and the Shechemites. You remember Shechem, um, he, you know, he rapes Dinah, uh, Simeon and Levi's sister. And uh, then they come around and um, they want to take Dinah's hand in marriage. And they say to the Shechemites, well, you're going to have to be circumcised if you want to do this. Go ahead. You and all the males with you be circumcised, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll put on this wedding. So they go, and they undergo circumcision. And on the third day, when they're, when they're very sore and least, least able to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi go in, and they just ransack the place. They kill all the men, and uh, they, they do untold damage. And that is what's being brought up here. Simeon and Levi, your brothers of violence... Brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Jacob says, let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. What is Jacob saying there? You know, if you were in the neighborhood when that was taking place and you were watching it, who would you think ordered that? You would think it was Jacob. He's the head of the household. These Are these... Is Simeon and Levi doing this on their own? I think you would be convinced that Jacob was masterminding this thing. It's Jacob's daughter who's been defiled, and it's Jacob who is, it's Jacob who's running this. Jacob had nothing to do with that. And what Jacob is saying right here, he says, Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. Let my soul not come into their counsel. And then he goes on. He says, For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Does anybody have a King James Bible open this morning? Okay, I asked because if you did, the translation there at the end looks a little different. It would say they digged up a wall, whereas we have the hamstrung oxen. And I want to point that to your attention because, uh, you, you're, you, you know, these, both of these translations are possible. Most English translations will, will render the passage pretty much like you see here, but the, the original is very difficult. Really, it comes down to vowel points, and the vowel points are changed a little bit, and it also comes down to the range of the words. You know how words can mean multiple things, and the context actually determines, is to determine the meaning of the word. Uh, it could be translated that they dug up a wall, and if that was the case, um, Calvin, Calvin, I think, is very instructive there. Uh, he says that their anger was so fierce that they didn't even leave buildings standing. They ransacked the buildings. Um, now, if we take this position that they hamstrung oxen, then it could be said that they had so little regard for life they didn't even 
leave the animals alive. Um, what exactly is in view, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, it could be one or the other. I think the spirit of it, the sentiment of it, is really uh, furious anger, uh, just absolutely furious anger. Verse 7, cursed be their anger for it's fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. And notice the curse, whereas Reuben loses his position as firstborn, Simeon and Levi are scattered in Israel. Now, um, boy, I don't know that I ought to close. If I close them right now, I, um, now what a miserable sermon, Rick. That was, uh, thank you very much, but that was really miserable. We've, um, and I think you know me better than that, that we're not going to close on this kind of a note. But um, there's a couple of points here. As we're asking the question, and I think I'm going to make it a series, you know, what is going to happen to us? We could call this morning, uh, what is going to happen to us, part one. Well, as we see what's happening to the, um, uh, the fathers of the tribes of Israel, we can, we can ascertain principles from this that will apply even to us. What is going to, what can I say or what can we say from this text of Scripture that would inform us in what's going to happen to us? That's pretty simple. I mean, one thing we can see is we're not going to get away with anything. I mean, we are not going to get away with anything. Uh, there's all kinds of conniving going on uh, all around us, always has been. It's going on now, conniving and uh, meetings behind closed doors and all this stuff. Listen, there isn't a door that's closed. There isn't a voice uh, that's heard that the Lord doesn't know about, nor is there a thought entertained that escapes His notice. Nobody's going to get away with anything. And as we think about what is going to happen to us, well, I can tell you one thing that's going to happen to us. Nobody's going to get away with anything. We're not going to get away with anything. And I could say a second thing, you know, hopefully the idea that nobody's going to get away with anything will lead us to Christ, because we're not going to get away with anything. Well, then if we're going to be held accountable for it, then what do we do? Well, God has offered us a Savior. He's offered us Christ. What, what, is Jesus, what, what can Jesus do for me? We can, he can take the guilt. He can take the guilt of, of, of this connivering that we've done. He can take the guilt of of our sins. He can take it away. How does He do that? Well, it's, it's, it's credited to Him on the cross. Your record is given to Him. The moment you put your faith in Christ, your record goes to Him. And He suffers for your record. And then His glorious record is given to you. But, although forgiveness, and this is the second thing that we can say, what is going to happen? This is the second thing that we can say. Though forgiveness is available in Christ, consequences may not be removed. We may have to live with the consequences, which is what Reuben is going to have to do. He has to live with the consequences that he's no longer the firstborn. And Simeon and Levi have to live with the consequences that they're going to be scattered in the inheritance. They're going to be scattered. Um, and I'd say a third thing, that the Lord is allowing this for us so that it will inform us and warn us from following these paths. But is there any grace in this? Oh, absolutely. There's always grace in this. What is the grace in this? Well, let's just think of, 
Levi for a moment. Let's think of Levi. Levi doesn't receive an inheritance in the promised land, does he? Does anybody know the history? They don't receive an inheritance, but they receive something that's better. What do they receive? They receive the priesthood. And this actually speaks to the firstborn in many ways. Let me just add this, and maybe I'll talk about it more next week. But one of the, one of the roles of the firstborn was to be a priest of the family. The, the ancient Jews point that out in the Targums. They, they talk about that. And I think they're 100% correct because let's think about it. Right now, Jacob is, if Jacob is, is functioning as the family prophet here, isn't he? Where he is communicating the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord to the people. But Jacob, in many other occasions, has offered sacrifices. Jacob, in many ways, is the pastor of the family. He is the priest in this economy, would be the priest of the family. But what's going to happen to Levi, and where's the grace in this? Well, yes, Levi, you're going to be scattered. But here's, here's what we're going to... Levi, the Lord says to Levi, I'm going to call you to myself. You're going to be my priest, and you're going to be scattered all over the Holy Land so that you can offer instruction to everybody who is scattered about in the Holy Land. Does that make sense? You see, there's tremendous amount of grace here. Reuben, we won't find, as we read the Scriptures, we won't find any prominent figures that come from the tribe of Reuben. In fact, you follow the history of Reuben, you'll see that their numbers decline. Actually, at some, point, at some points in time, they decline to where they're dangerously low. And Simeon, you'll find Simeon is uh, kind of scattered about, and many of the same sediments are there. But where's the grace? The grace is, we have every reason to believe that these are saved men. You remember all of this, a long time ago, we were studying how Joseph was, was bringing them and leading them, being used by God to bring them to repentance. And you remember those meetings, they come down, and you remember all that stuff. We took our time plowing through that stuff. And they did own up to their sin, didn't they? And they did ask for forgiveness. And we have very good reason to believe that these men are, are in Christ. Um, and there is the, therein lies the grace. Um, another thing, and I'll conclude with this sentiment, is we have this recorded for us so that all of these years later, we could gather in this room and we could look at these things and we could be instructed by these things. And as one sinner comes to repentance, we're told that all of heaven rejoices, aren't we? That would include Simeon and Levi and that would include Reuben joining in this. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you that, Father, you've given us these stories that have their difficulty in getting through, Father. In many ways, it's a sore message. But, Father, we are still comforted by it for so many, for so many reasons we're comforted by it. We're comforted by it because, Lord, you do take sin seriously. We see that no one is getting away with anything. As we ask the question, what is going to happen to us? We are going to be judged. We are going to stand before you. And unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will, we will have, we will have uh, uh, no footing to stand. But, Father, we see that if we are clothed in Christ, being clothed in Christ, we can stand. And we, we can do more than simply stand in your court we can actually and will be and are welcomed as children and co-heirs with Christ.
Oh, Lord, as we get to Judah and as we look at Judah next week, we'll see so much more of this. Fill our hearts, O Father, afresh with your grace in the interim, Father, um, as we look forward to that. And Father, instruct us, O Father. Instruct us and um, help us, O Father, to digest the many things that we've, that we've heard this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.